Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm Nicholas Sorma with my I'm co-host. I'm Gabriel Kraza. Very, very welcome to you all. Um, our podcast is actually doing all right, I think. Yeah, I'm happy we're getting more listeners. We're uh, thinking of more things to talk about. Which is surprising considering, you know, that we do sometimes go on a bit. Yeah, I would say we waffle. We do. There is a bit of waffle here. But I would say Belgian waffles are the one good thing about Belgium. But I will say that, and we're the one good thing about waffles. W- waffles are very delicious. So yeah. we will continue to keep waffling, um, but hopefully in a informative way. Yeah, we try to inform. We try to do some research in the build up to each one of these podcasts and yeah. present people with some hot takes and also just some basic facts that are useful to know. Exactly. Right. So let's talk about the great shadow looming over us all. Uh, or maybe it's not, we'll see, uh, which is the... Uh, COVID-19. Yes, popularly known as the coronavirus. Um, or nouveau SARS, or as nouveau I call SARS, it. As, as you call it. Um, has landed in South Africa, finally. Yeah. Uh, a man has gone to Italy. Uh, he's a sort of quite wealthy guy. He uh, was on holiday there with his family, and he came back, um, and while, after he came back, he felt a bit ill. So he went to the doctor and the doctor said, mm, you've just come back from Northern Italy and you have all the symptoms of coronavirus. We better COVID. check this out. We better check it out. And he has now tested positive. The good news is it looks like he's feeling better yeah. already. Um, he was a 38-year-old guy, so he's you know not particularly at risk from the disease. But hopefully everyone he came in contact with is uh, tracked down and monitored. Yeah, we've got to hope so. So we've been having this sort of back and forth discussion. I know you've been having it with a lot of your friends about like... Uh, how bad actually is this thing going to be? Mm. And now sort of that question relies on how quarantined and stuff it is. But there's also another problem, right, which you've been talking about, which is the the over-quarantine problem. Yeah. Yeah, so on the epidemiology side, I think that very smart people are doing very smart work, Uh Earlier this week, the New England Journal of Medicine published a report that found the death rate amongst uh, COVID-19 people who present any symptoms at all is 1.4%, which is lower than the 3.4% being said by the World Health Organization. Part of the difference is that if you take the number of people that have the confirmed to have COVID-19, it's about 95,000, whatever it is, Last time I checked, it was around there yesterday. And then the number of people who confirmed to die from it's like 3,000. It looks like you can just divide the one by the other and you get a death rate of 3.4%. If you take a death rate of 3.4%, then you just imagine that the virus spreads. If it spreads even half as much as the flu spreads, that means the flu's kill rate is about 0.1%. Yeah, something like that. <clears throat> uh, 3.4% is then 34 times yeah. greater. So instead of killing like 20, 30, 40,000 people a year in a country, it'll be killing uh, nearly a million. Yeah. There's, so, there's also, so that's very scary. Yeah, there's, but, but there's also some suggestion. If it's 1.4% yeah. or if it's 3%, 3.4%, that's a huge difference. And that's kind of something that scientists mm. are busy figuring out. And I don't have an opinion one way or another because I'm not qualified. It's not that I'm not qualified, I'm not a scientist. It's just that I haven't read enough. Like I've read half of the New England Journal of Medicine. I've read some of the WHO. Uh, I've I've also seen um, some speculation that uh, China has been hit particularly hard due to, and and Chinese men in particular, because uh, smoking is extremely prevalent Mm. amongst Chinese men. Um, And there's a lot of air pollution there. There's a huge amount of air pollution. So it's incredibly rich environment for lung damage yeah basically. and there's, the, there's the, what's that phrase glass glass lung or something like that it's sort of yeah exactly the it's, way that it often ends up killing people and that works better if your lungs are already a bit screwed up yeah a bit screwed up so uh, uh, and also people with underlying heart conditions are at risk as yeah. well immunodepressants they're various uh, just generally being older mm. puts you at high risk I'm, I'm sh- it's, I imagine it, that's also true if you're very very young um, but one of the things about COVID-19 is that it spreads, it doesn't spread through the air as well as some flus. Mm. What it does do for a virus is it survives for a hell of a long time on a tabletop in a droplet of sweat or water or snot or anything yeah, like that. So it so, spreads a lot by touch. And that's why the hand washing thing is such a big deal because it really mm. does make a big difference. It always makes a big difference, but it makes even a more of a difference with COVID-19 yes. and with a lot of other it, things. It's other problems, of course, is that it's asymptomatic transfer. It has the ability to asymptomatically transfer. I've seen some suggestions that it's about, uh, there was a, 
there was a there was a thing that on a scale of one to a hundred gave various diseases uh, how likely they were to to spread. Yeah. Um, and so sort of like Spanish flu, which was the world's last major flu pandemic, had a very similar sort of rate of spread to, mm. to COVID-19, although it was much deadlier. Um, but what was fascinating, though, is that we've actually survived diseases that were far more contagious than COVID-19 and far more deadly, like measles. Yeah, Measles, interestingly enough, if, if COVID-19's rating of spread is about four, yeah. it, theirs is 33. So this is why it's a very good idea to vaccinate against measles. Because it spreads like wildfire. It's crazy, yeah. So, okay, so I think that probably exhausts, we could probably keep talking a little bit about yeah, the epidemiology. Could, about that. But, but, and, but and, 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 okay, the last thing I want to say about the epidemiology is that um, people are, good epidemiologists are going to be looking very seriously at the Princess cruise boat. Because when you've got a ring fence population, seeing uh, kind the of- Diamond Princess. Diamond Princess. Yeah. When you've got a ring fence population, that gives you a really good way of figuring out how a thing spreads from a single source spreads yes. around. Yes. Um, likewise, there'll be parts of China that were so well quarantined that they're going to be useful mm. to figuring out the truth. And that's part of the reason. Sorry, when I said 1.4% is what the New England Journal of Medicine found, that was in China. Mm. Um, it was That wasn't a global thing. So anyway- other people are going to have to figure that out. So, yeah, so, is so the economic point. I do want to say I do want to say something before we sort of get into this. So we're going to talk about two two kind of problems here. One is the under response, and one is the over response. Right. There is a sweet spot at which you should take this seriously, and yeah. you should, and a government should respond to that level. Yeah. But above or below that level is going to cause a serious problem. Yeah. So here's so here's a here's something that was sitting on my mind over the Christmas season this year and going into January and February. Uh, kind of because I knew the Germans were visiting and kind of because this is a kind of story that I've been, I've been following nuclear for a long time. Ever since I was in high school, I've been very interested in nuclear energy. You're a big nuclear fan. I am. As am I. Yeah, it's it's the most sustainable, cheapest, safest way to produce power. What really swung me on nuclear is when I realized that the amount of nuclear waste produced is really not that much. Yeah, yeah, it's tiny. So there was an article published by the Institute of Labor Economics uh, initiated by the Deutsche Post Foundation last year, October, November last year. Uh, three professors, Matthew Neidl, uh, Shinsuke Uchida, and Marcelli, Marcella Veronesi. So what I like about that is Matthew Neidl's like from Columbia University, Shinsuke Uchida is from a very prestigious Japanese university, and Marcella Veronesi is from Verona. So you've got this <laughs> nice international gathering of really smart academics. And they write a paper called, Be Cautious with the Precautionary Principle. So the mm. precautionary simple principle in the COVID case is like, you know, shut everything down, quarantine everything, don't, don't let anything happen because the best uh, defense against this disease is not to try and cure it, but is to- Just stop it. Stop it from yeah, spreading. Straight up. The precautionary. So they say, be cautious with the precautionary Pre Prevention principle. is better than cure. That's the phrase we're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Be cautious with the precautionary principle, evidence from Fukushima, Diachi nuclear accident. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously not disease. This is a different kind of thing. But the claim that they make is that the number of people who died as a result of the tsunami, uh, the Pacific tsunami, and this the, is the 2011 tsunami in Japan, and one of its negative effects was that when it hit the nor uh, northeast coast of Japan, it uh, flooded the diesel backup generators that were meant to basically support, uh, prevent the meltdown. Of keep a, cooling yeah. the nuclear reactors in Fukushima, yeah. and so there was there was there were deaths directly related to that, mm. to overheating nuclear reactors because and radiation I'm, waste being leaked out. Yeah, in fact, I'm, the first death was confirmed last year from radiation. So recently. So what exactly but, happened was the. Uh, the water flooded the generators, which prevented them from being able to cool the thing. So the thing goes into meltdown. Now, also because water had flooded all the bottom levels, yeah. uh, some of the radioactive material, which should have been contained in the concrete structure, yeah. leaked out into Through the water. Through the water. Yes. So um, the water that was designed to cool the thing ended up crashing the diesel generators and then spreading and the And then radiation. going into the sea, yes. So it was like a very sad... Yeah, case and, and, and it's, of, even, it's even worse because the, the Fukushima plant had actually had a wall built to resist a tsunami. Yeah. But it wasn't quite high enough. And they just had, I think about a month or two before the, the thing, by chance, they had actually discussed 
upping the height of the wall yeah. just to make extra sure. Yeah. And they had kind of dragged their feet on it, not really realizing, I mean, and who can blame them, that one of the biggest earthquakes to hit northern Japan was yeah. about to whack them. Yeah. So I think that you've got to cut people some slack uh, when when something like that happens. I think at the same time there's got to be accountability, but you know, there were very brave Japanese dudes sort of very clearly risking their lives to get in there and try and do what they can to stop the spread of the thing. And it was another one of these sort of perfect storm events where uh, like everything kind of just goes wrong in an unexpected way yeah. that causes the problem to be bigger than it should have been. But so one of the... Okay, so, so what these three um, academics point out are two of the slightly more delayed side effects or sort of precautionary attempts that were made and the disastrous effects that they had. One is the evacuation. There were huge amounts of evacuations and they find, they trace down six, seven years later, 2,000 deaths directly caused by the evacuations. That's either sick people being moved and so dying in transit or shortly afterwards because their the life support systems and yeah. stress. They also find people, old people being evacuated that just, like they, they weren't sick per se, but they were pretty fragile and the, they sort of do this actuarial calculation of the heart attacks in that population compared to what the kinds of heart mm. attack rate is that you'd expect in that population. They find an increase. They take that difference, <coughs> the additional deaths. Mm. And then they take the general suicide rate of Japan, the suicide rate of people who well, had been evacuated and couldn't area, go yeah. back. They find the difference between that and then they take some other count, things into account to make the difference smaller and smaller so that they, as in an actuarial way, but in as precise a way as possible. They, they come up with an estimate of how many people estimate were killed how by many moving. Yeah. By the evacuations. And they find 2,000 killed by the evacuations. Furthermore, so that's already more than died directly from the event, which is a problem. And then secondly, Japan decided very quickly to shut down all of its nuclear reactors. Some then were re reinstated, but the rest have been mothballed. But for a, for, for a while, all nuclear power in Japan was shut down. Mm. Nuclear power was producing like a 30% of Japan's total power capacity. Mm. And so to make, make up for this loss, well, what are you going to do? You hike up prices. So prices of electricity went up by as much as a third in Tokyo, for example. and Which means that Japan's very old population in the cold winter. People weren't turning their heaters up as much. They were trying people like flipping, oh, you know, I, I don't know. It's Anyway, I was trying to discuss this with some people and they're being very unsympathetic to how you can possibly make this calculation. But if you've ever been to a first world country and you've hung out with old people, then you know and it's the same in lots of South Africa. Like people are living very, very frugally, very, very carefully. They've got no new income. They're just kind of living with their pensions. Mm -hmm. Every cent is accounted for. Everything has to work and out. They're still, and you know. if suddenly one of your basic costs goes up by 30%, yeah. you try and find the ways to mitigate that and the increased exposure to the cold. Okay, that's for people who can afford to pay for their own heating and other people who kind of relying on their kids, the other people who are relying mm, on mm. social uh, sort of housing stuff. The, the, every year, there are people who die of cold exposure in Japan. Mm. Uh, so again, this is not just the total cold exposure rate. This is an actuarial is calculation of, that, yeah. of, the, of the difference between the usual deaths associated with it and, and what happened afterwards. And they find 2,000 deaths 2,000 additional deaths being caused by the mm. hike in, electrici in e electricity prices, which was caused by shutting down all of the other nuclear reactors, even though they were all totally fine. Mm. So that brings it up to like 3,280 deaths, which is a scary number in a way to think that, you know, in our attempts to be super precautionary, we, we killed 3,280 people. Now, in the, in the moral or, or, or governmental accounting book, You've got to measure that up against the unseen people who might have died if yeah. the precautionary steps hadn't been taken. Of course, because we don't. And worse had happened. We can't well. necessarily calculate that with the same degree of accuracy because it didn't happen. Yeah. So it's difficult. And, and, these, and these academics aren't baying for blood. They're not super angry. They're just saying when you make contingency plans. Yeah, there's no, no cost solution. Very, you've, got to, you've got to be worried about underreacting and you've got to be worried about overreacting. Mm. And this is just a really good example of, and increasingly people in Japan have 
like ordinary like newspapers and social media and you know ordinary folks seem increasingly worried that they overreacted to this yes. and that going forward they need to be careful not to make that same mistake again. Mm. So I think Although that's it, a much it, smaller case. COVID is obviously a global uh, thing. Japan is a really well-organized society. Uh, you can imagine, I mean- It's a wealthy if, society. If we were to raise electricity, if we were to shut down 30% of our coal, power generation- Our coal-fired power plants, yeah. Because of whatever. Well, because they're poisoning the air. I mean, a lot yeah. of the, 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 there's a- Escom power plant that's currently in court because an environmental group says that they are not properly running the scrubbers to clean the air that comes out of the top of the thing, yeah, um, and which could result in the thing being shut down. And then, and then you've got to you've got to be realistic. If you shut that thing down, and that puts electricity prices up around there, and that means that a lot of all grannies load and shedding. granddads causes load shedding, and that causes more crime. You know, you've got to th- you know. Cause and effect, the relationship, mm. the humankind is very interesting because we get along by getting our act together. But getting our act together means that if someone uh, drops the ball or some part of the great social web is shut down, then the the ricochet uh, can ripple across and, and hurt people in yeah, ways that yeah. you don't expect if you don't think about it. So the point is that you can, it's like when they shut down those cold, when they shut down those nuclear plants, it's not like, they would have been surprised if an economist had come up to them and said, well, we're going to have to increase electricity prices by 30%. Yeah, they knew it was going to happen. They knew that was going to happen. And if an actuarial scientist had then come up and said, well, if you push up electricity prices by 30%, this, this is the number of extra deaths mm. that you can expect from cold exposure, they wouldn't be surprised either. None of this is unexpected in that sense. It's just the case that people aren't necessarily asking mm. the right questions at the right time because they feel kind of panicked. And, and yeah, and, and other things are going on. moral the, urgency. In the background, right? Because Japan, of course, has a very particular... Uh, shall we say, uh, unhappy history with nuclear, being yeah. the only victim of a of a nuclear bombing yeah. in in, uh, in world history. So I think that also was partly what led into kind of some of the the hysteria to to push for shutting things down. Yeah. Um, but in COVID's case, you know, uh, we could overreact. We've already seen a lot of ominous reports about how the global economy is going to be affected. Okay, before the global economy, Iran is clearly overreacting. Iran has sent tens of thousands of troops around its big urban centers to kind of crush. uh, Although, how much of that is virus? How much of that is due to general disorder? I mean, Iran- No, that's what, no, no, no. They're using the virus as an excuse to do a little bit of military police state kind of descent control. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Because, I mean, they're only barely holding onto legitimacy, that government, anyway. Uh, They keep facing massive protests. So that's the wrong way to do it. The wrong way to treat the virus arriving is to have your deputy minister of health sort of showing viral symptoms while saying nothing is going on. Yeah, first lie about how bad it is and then use how bad it is to start... You know, oppressing your population, justifying that—that's really that's like a good example of definitely how not to do it. Yeah, they've done under and over both, both <laughs> kind of in the same week. Yes, so that's miserable. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of China, I think that anyone well, who thinks this isn't a big deal should look at the Chinese uh, purchasing managers index. Yes, which, which is, is I think the lowest since at least the nineties. No, it's the lowest since ever. Before the nineties, <laughs> they didn't have it on record. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the lowest ever. It's, it's the much lowest, lower, lowest recorded. Lowest recorded. It's much lower than after the global financial crisis. It could bounce back quicker, but at the moment, it's very concerning. From you know, the, when I first got back to the office at the start of the year, and reports were coming out of COVID nineteen. Ian Crookshanks, the chief economist at the Institute of Race Relations, came and said, "Gabriel, I want to show you something," and he showed me the price of copper, which is a very good lead indicator of what's going oh, on in the Chinese demand side economy. Yeah. And it had plummeted, mm. you know. So if you look at Venice, it's empty. It's a tourist-based place. Mm. They can't survive going into the summer there are without still, there are still millions uh, of tourists coming yeah. in there for six weeks because they just don't have that money in the bank, that much money in the bank to keep their staff on on payroll and so on. There are still it. millions of Chinese people quarantined in their homes, um, in in especially in Wuhan, yeah, uh, in in middle China. Um, and the Chinese are now having to find ways around that. I mean, students are learning via remote learning and people are trying to work through the you know, internet and that kind of thing. But it's, it's having a big effect. So, and some of that effect could be salutary. One of the things that's, uh, one of the big pressures has been on people to stop traveling as much. Mm. And I've got to say, okay, can I brag? Yes, yes, yes of course you can brag. Yay, <laughs> I like bragging on the show. So on Wednesday, I got called in to... Uh, 
kind of co-teach a class at Yale University. Uh, Princeton, Yale, we're going to the top right now. Going, going, going places. So uh, there's a professor there that I've known and we work together and he's teaching a class uh, about uh, um, global democracy, sort of political science class, and he wanted to talk about how to hack a democracy. So he had me and a guy from Kenya and a guy from London and a guy from the States, kind of all conference call in, and a senator who started it all. So yeah, I was sharing a stage there with the senator, Ooh, with fancy. Yale students, <laughs> asking us tough questions on uh, Super Tuesday. Anyway, you know what was great about it? It really was a fascinating conversation. It was three hours with like some... Pretty smart dudes from around the world. From 12 till 3 o'clock in the morning our it, time. It was from 12 to 3 o'clock in the morning our time. That was a bummer about it. But everything else was very nice about it. And we didn't have to, like, we could be speaking from seven different countries because the internet to a class of however many people and their questions, they've got a roving mic so they can ask us. We could screen share stuff so they could see our face or they could see our slides or they could see particular things on the internet we wanted to pull up. You know, it was really, I was like, this is the twi- this is Star Wars. This yeah, is the this hologram is thing. Exactly. This is what we were always waiting for. This is this is the future, it's now here. It's so much better doing it that way than fly, like at the start of the year, my fiance had to fly to America to go to a conference where like, like it's hard for me to understand why she, why the conference has to all be in person other than for the kind of networking around it. And you know what the networking around it is? You can still pick up on who you think's interesting in the conference and then get their email address and drop them a WhatsApp or an email or make that contact anyway. So the point is... I'm going to have to stop you there because my nose has just started bleeding. So I'll okay. have to continue in a second. Okay, we're going to pause this. We're going to pause. And we're back uh, after that brief interlude. Yep. Nick is no longer bleeding from his nose. Which for you, because of the magic of editing, will appear like, you know, no time at all. Yeah, we've just had a break, but we're happy to be back. Sorry about that. Mm. Um, As you were saying. So the, uh, a couple of, over the last couple of years, there've been a few stories coming out, including in The Economist magazine, about social conventions driving people to fly around more then really makes business sense. Yes. A lot of business flights that are kind of paid for by the company, the incentives are a bit no, it's wrong. True. I mean, you don't need in-body. And a lot of those conferences are really like not quite worth it. Yeah. So if one of the effects is, that, you know, people are really worried about American Airlines kind of shutting down some of its routes and whatnot. If one of the results of the COVID virus is that, you know, uh, air traffic reduces substantially and then when it comes back, it doesn't come back quite to the same level that it was. That's not necessarily a bad thing. This program that I used to do the Yale conference call was called Zoom. It's way better than Skype. Yeah. Uh, you know, apps like that that are adding real value by allowing people to conference without having to be there in body uh, might be uh, taking the opportunity to enhance their product services and that ult- anything that ultimately adds to the efficiency of the economy is uh, it's a very good thing. It's fine. And and that means that all the sort of more vital travel which goes through airports uh, is going to be a little bit less impacted yeah. in such a scenario. So, yeah. So that's just one kind of scenario. Uh, it's important to note that, Dow, you know, the American Stock Exchange took a very heavy knock. It's and rallied. Took a very big rally. Yeah. yeah sort of. so, so it's too soon to say exactly what the long-term economic consequences are going to be. It's clearly very concerning that China's... Well, we uh, the, just, just for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with the PMI, the Purchases Management Index, it's like quite concrete stuff. Hey? It's like you survey a lot of businesses in the country and you ask them to, to tell you various matrices, like how's your inventory levels looking, how are your orders coming through in terms of time, uh, what kinds of guarantees are you getting and are they being satisfied in terms of uh, uh, the amount that you want to order and the quality you want to order and the time you want to order. And then, so those are like just hard numbers things. What's your employment level looking like compared to where it was a quarter ago or a year ago? And then some of them are more subjective. Like, do you think things are going in the right direction or the wrong direction? Do you feel more confident or less confident as a procurement manager, for example, in your business? So the fact that that index is the lowest that's ever been recorded that is gen- that's a lead indicator. In other words, that tells you that usually something about what some, the economy is going to be like in be the coming. next yeah, year. Yeah. And so if China's economy starts slowing down in the next year, it's not a total disaster because India's growth, it's such a big economy and it's, it's growing yeah. so fast that it could absorb some of the um, slack 
left in the reduced demand from the Chinese side. But on the other hand, but considering how coronavirus yeah. hits India, oh my lord, we're in for big trouble then. Um, and of course, that's the other part of this is that we don't entirely know. Never mind the economic consequences. What the health consequences are going to be yet? Yeah, and the costs related to that. It's clear the disease has not yet peaked. Yeah. Um, so we're still waiting for that to happen. Hopefully soon, rather than later. Okay. So I think the points. I think we've given some some detailed facts mm. that are interesting, and I think we've given this sort of philosophical overview of, you know, please bear in mind that there is a way to overreact. Please mm. bear in mind that there's a way to underreact. And I, and now I want to say my last point, which is even more philosophically abstract. And this is that I think. What you philosophically abstract? No. <laughs> and I'm going to get into it by talking about a movie. I think the commercially most successful movie, or one of the most top ten commercially successful movies in the last, well, ever, because uh, they keep getting bigger, was called Avengers: Endgame or Infinity War. What's the one where spoiler alert: half the people die at the end? Infinity War. Infinity War. If you're hearing this, I'm very sorry if I've uh, ruined your day. You've already seen the movie if you're ever going to care about watching the movie realistically. Probably, yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a rare Hollywood blockbuster in which the bad guy wins. Yes. And when the bad guy wins, half of the people in the universe... Yes, he's a, he's a, he's a Malthusian sort of environmentalist. Yeah. And uh, that he thinks that there are too many living creatures in the universe and they need to kill half of them completely randomly using this magic device yeah. in order to prevent overpopulation. Restore balance to the yeah. universe, let nature flourish, and also for moral, you know, let, let goodness reign Yeah, he thinks, he thinks that if he doesn't do this, then everyone who remains, you know, allowing the population Just to remain... Just becomes more evil and will, more will rapacious yeah. and, and have a bad time. Okay, so what's interesting about that is before that and something and after that, I've just been to so many bries where there's like some dude with a joint in his mouth. He's like, "Yeah, human beings are just a virus infecting the planet. We're and like, the cancer." Ugh. And wouldn't it be great if we just wiped out? I mean, and it's like such an ironic. It's like I've got to say, I find well, it amusing. Gabriel, it I, does tickle my fancy. I have been like, telling I see you the joke. I have been telling you to go to different parties. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I've also got like old friends that are really, really dear to me who who have responded to the coronavirus sort of in secret by saying, you know, maybe this is what we need. Humans are so wicked that we but sometimes it people, in like quite a serious people way. People even say it explicitly about China. They say, oh, China has too many people. It yeah. needs to be you know, cleansed or something. Uh, they use kind of weird terminology like that, which makes one feel very uncomfortable. If yeah. you stop and think about it for yeah. a few minutes. Yeah, and uh, and 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 so I think one of the encouraging things is that when people talk like this, it's often when I say it's ironic, I mean it's a theatrical performance. Yeah. They don't have their hands on the lever of power, and they don't really, and they, they haven't considered that seriously. And if you were to put them in the room and be like, "Here's a button, you can press that button, half the people are going to die, or like half of China is going to die, or whatever it is," like I don't think they would press the button because yeah. I don't because I don't think they take themselves seriously. One, yeah, once they have to actually face the moral consequences, they would be a little bit less. The, flippant. Yes. So, But it does speak to something. It does speak to something, a kind of misanthropia, which I think, you know, I, again, I've got to say, I've got a lot of respect for people who don't just think that people are all angels. Yes. Uh, and, th and that's the nice side of it. But there's, a, there's obviously this very dark side to it too. And the way that I imagined it is I sometimes astral travel to go and eavesdrop on Chairman Mao and Stalin's ghosts who take tea <laughs> once a week. I think you know this as well. Everyone knows this, right? Yeah. They have tea once a week in uh, Pyongyang, North Korea. Yes. Obviously. Where their spirits endure. Yeah, where, where, where death serves them tea as a sort of thank you for doing him such a favor yeah. uh, for so many years, sending so many tens of millions to his door. And uh, they get to talk about modern politics and contemporary affairs and and I go and eavesdrop a little bit and Chairman Mao was so pissed off this weekend. He was like, Xi is not dealing with this properly. There are two very big problems in China. One is that, uh, well, the overall problem is success. Once people get success, all they want is more success. And then they're going to might derail the revolution. And then they'll derail the revolution. Now there's 800 million people who've been lifted out of poverty. The population is aging. They expect pensions. They expect social grants. They expect to be taken care of in their old age with good hospitals. These demands are sending China into a financial potential death trap. A death spiral. Yeah. And so the, we've got a big problem, too many old people. We've got this other big problem, coronavirus. Ah, turns out coronavirus mainly kills old people. The two problems cancel each other out. You just let the virus spread, it'll kill all the old people, and then everything will be fine. Stalin said, 
I like how you're thinking, but you're not thinking big enough because other problem, only problem bigger than our success is the success of America. What we need to do is blame coronavirus on America. Soviet agents, Putin is not really doing this psyops thing very yeah, well. No, he's, considering all of the, the, the reputation he seems to have developed for psyops, he's not really pulling this one hard. Yeah, up. Stalin is like, this guy is a useless psyops he's guy. amateur. There should be tens of thousands of Soviet spies in America blackmailing US scientists into confessing that they had actually concocted COVID-19 in a laboratory somewhere between where they find the aliens and where they yeah, bury yeah. the gold. Arizona, Nevada, <laughs> out in the desert there. Yeah. <laughs> and that they released it deliberately into Wuhan because they thought this is the center of Chinese uh, development and they need to undo the communist revolution and they're a bunch of anti-Chinese racists anyway. Well, well, and this would cause America to rip itself to shreds and also at the same time, the very same Soviet agency would literally be spreading the COVID-19 virus throughout America and infecting Bernie Sanders because he saw so old he might die and then spreading rumors about how this was done he deliberately was assassinated, yes. by Hillary Clinton. I mean, this is how you really do it, says Stalin to Mao. And Mao says to Stalin, if we were in charge, the world would be so much better after all. And the point of that conversation is that that is so well, far from what's happening. To be fair, yeah. the, Iranian, the Iranians are trying their best to, yes. to sort of do the Stalin thing. Yeah, yeah, just, no. that we have the world, thankfully, <laughs> has the advantage that the Iranian government is pretty rubbish at most of the things it tries to do. So Stalin and Mao agree that Iran is doing it the right yeah, way. Yeah, Iran's doing it the right way. Everyone else is and doing it wrong. Everyone else is doing it the wrong way. And that, I just find that so inspiring. I think, in a way, the, the reaction to COVID-19 has been, we need to do whatever we can to stop the virus spreading. Oh, it only kills old people. We need to do whatever we can to stop the virus spreading. No. And that's a life-affirming thing. It's been so life-affirming. And now as the story progresses, as we worry about overreaction and underreaction, my plea is that it still comes from that life-affirming space, yes. that you need to make the calculations of how not to overreact because that can end up killing more people and now how not to underreact because that can also keep yeah, end exactly, up killing more people. Exactly. The thing is to not kill more people. Yes, Because we matter. Goal. We are what matter and... And we're flawed and we're faulty and we really make terrible and mistakes. some of us have older parents uh, who yeah. we are quite fond of and we would rather them not get killed by the newest plague. And South Africa's full of fa fabulous good people with HIV AIDS. Or with we, tuberculosis. You know, it's like we really have to be, be careful mm. and being careful is not the same thing as being overly cautious. Yes. Being careful means at every step of the way, testing the facts, testing the agendas of the people presenting you with the facts to see if they're just trying to push their you know, own their medicine. Own version, yeah. And then to make a cost-benefit analysis of every decision that takes into account the fact that if you, if you uh, lock everything down and screw the economy up, that makes people poorer. If every five points the GDP goes down, you know, an extra 10% of the population gets killed or whatever the numbers are. You mm. figure out those numbers and, well, and, you, and you see that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Every decision that we make is going to have a cost. Exactly. So we've got to make sure that we're making the right decisions. And actually considering how much medical equipment is produced in China to begin with, yeah. you, you run into the, or usually the low end stuff, I think, but you, yeah, you, you, run may, the you may run into the problem where if the Chinese aren't in their factories, you're going to run short of the medical equipment you need to fight the virus anyway. To fight that virus and to fight malaria and, and to fight cancer, cancer and heart disease. Yeah. So there is there is a lot to consider here. With and, this. and then let's hold on to the life-affirming stuff. No, okay. for, sure, for sure. And on that note, one of the hardest questions to think about from a life-affirming point of view, abortion. <laughs> Gabriel, Gabriel was insistent that we talk about uh, abortion today. And after much bludgeoning, uh, we agreed. So, Gabriel, I think you had a very well. Here's the thing, and this is this is this is kind of our point, your point, but uh, but let me spell it out here. The abortion debate is stupid. The way it's conducted in the public square, particularly in America, but pretty much globally, is very stupid. Yeah, the teams are labelled as pro-choice as though only they care about choices mm -hmm. or pro-woman or as though only they care about women. And the other team is labeled as pro-life or pro-child yeah. as if they only care about lives and babies. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's a completely false dichotomy. It's a, really, it's a really good way of framing the debate so that it seems like on our side, we've got all the goodness and on that side- Exactly. And it's because the question is so difficult because yeah. it is a philosophical question. Are you taking a human life or not? Yeah. And because that's too difficult a question to answer, 
the yeah, like it gets the reframed on in both sides way. have have yeah shifted it into this realm where it's no longer possible to discuss it because I mean I I know someone who who mentioned who said that that they themselves were pro-choice but they said to a a a, a person they were talking to I look I don't think we should restrict abortions but uh. I think that they're really unpleasant things. You know, I think we should try and avoid them whenever we have the option to take the other way. Yeah. And the person said, why do you hate women so much? Yeah. As the response. Yeah. Which is mad. It's ungenerous. It's, it's not listening. It's, it's untethered to reason. And it's buying the sort of cheap, lazy propaganda. Yeah. Exactly as you said yeah. this. We're all good. They're all bad. Uh, and it's usually framed as a secular versus religious debate, but that's not really true. So when I was a kid, I first noticed this because there were abortion conversations happening in the sort of adult circle around me from when I was quite young. And at the same time, I was like a precocious brat who liked reading the stuff on the cereal box while I was eating breakfast alone every morning. And also like reading the stuff on the milk cotton. That's an incredibly like mournful image. I'm just seeing small, lonely Gabriel sitting there reading his his cereal box. No, I did. And the Chappie's paper. I often had a few Chappie's papers lying around. But who who doesn't love Chappie's papers? You know? (laughs) But so the, the most interesting fact that I ever remember learning from that was that there's no such thing as full fat milk. Right? There's full cream milk. Yes. And then there's low-fat milk. Yeah, 2%. 2% low-fat, 1% low-fat, 0.2% low-fat. No or, fat. Or even no fat. Mm. So it's like somehow the milk guys have decided that you're either for cream, for full creaminess yes. or you're for low-fatness. Yeah, you're, you're pro-cream or you're anti-fat. So, and, and, and that's, I totally get from an advertising point of view why you do that. You don't want to say, hey, buy some full-fat milk. Or say, hey, buy some not very creamy milk. Yeah. So, so there's going to be there, there's only going to be one. I mean, you know, if I saw something that was called full fat milk, I'd buy it. But that's because I'm a lunatic. Well, so as that's time has gone my by, my idea of nutrition that's is butter. Right. So as time has gone by, the the great irony is that now advertising full fat milk, it's like anyone who's like on a banting diet yes, or like yes. any of the other like modern conceptions of what nutrition is about is like, okay, yes, full fat. Yes. But if you if you just put yourself back in time. And think from that 90s lens where like fat's the, the devil. There's a trade-off, right? There's you get more fat, but you get more flavor. You get less fat, you get less flavor. If, you re- if this was a very important thing, we would always have to talk about, do you want the, okay, more flavor, that's nice, but, but more fat, which is a problem option, or do you want the less flavor, which is a problem, but less fat, which is a good thing? Mm. option you'd always have the good and the bad next to each other of the trade-off because what you're trading off is one good for another good and you can't have both goods at the same time that's from the 90s nutrition point of view that nutrition point of view is wrong (laughs) but i think we all can put ourselves in that headspace so i think that the the thing about the abortion debate is that no one wants to put themselves in anything like that headspace they just want to say our side is is got the we're, we're low fat and yeah. you know what really matters is fat. Flavor but, doesn't matter. Or we're full cream and you know what matters is cream and, and, and fatness doesn't matter at all. But, but of course, uh, you know, to one of the other distinctions between this t- the abortion debate and that sort of cream thing yeah. is that the stakes are so high in this the one. The stakes are so high. Right. Either you're forcing women to live with, with sort of uh, you know, consequences of a, of a mistake or maybe even a tragedy or maybe even yeah. an act of violence or something like yeah. that. Uh, and on the other hand, you might be killing an innocent child. Yeah. And so they're really, the, the line for it's messing really about hard. on this, yeah, we yeah. can't fudge it and say, oh, we'll have half cream. Yeah. Because you know, that's not good enough with the stakes of this high. So one of the things, so, I, so my thesis at Princeton was on personal identity. The question philosophers have been asking themselves for thousands of years, perhaps longer, is what is a person? What makes a person a person? What are the persistence conditions of a person? In other words, uh, what can a person survive? What can a person not survive? Uh, What are the constituting conditions of a person? What kinds of material do you have to have around for there to be a person, short of which there is no person, just a person-like thing? It's a very interesting topic. I won't go into my thesis because Mm. it had very little to do with this. and that in itself is interesting. Personal identity theory almost never touches on the start of life because it's so afraid to venture where these angels fear to tread because it's such a politicized thing that philosophers 
hardly even believe that they can have this conversation and it's, without being shot down as picking one side over the other. It's not even a new debate. No. So, um, you know, generally people who are anti-abortion are uh, assumed to just be Christians or relig- religious people. But that, that's not entirely true because there are completely atheistic and secular people who oppose abortion as well on philosophical grounds. But within the Christian church itself, while the general stance over history has been an anti-abortion one, going back to some of the early church fathers in the 300s like St. Augustine of Hippo, um, there's, there's actually been debate even within the Christian church, there were some who said, for example, an embryo doesn't have a soul and therefore it's not really a person and therefore you know, abortion is kind of okay. There were others who and said- And if it's not okay, it's not okay for other reasons. Yes. It's not not okay because it's murder, it's not okay because- Well, in, back, in, back in the period when this stuff was being written, you know- a, a Women abortion, were often property and- Well, not just that, an abortion itself um, was often very dangerous for a woman yeah. because she usually had to take a kind of poison. Yeah. effectively to, 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 to carry out the abortion. Uh, so that was one one version. There was another version which said, no, the child isn't ensouled, doesn't receive its sort of soul uh, at birth, but actually it still shouldn't be killed for other sort of complicated philosophical reasons. Mm-hmm. And then it receives its soul somewhere in the thing. Mm-hmm. So they made a distinction between early term and late term abortion. Yeah, from the is, beginning. From And part of this is like Aristotle has got this theory that there's different kinds of kinds of life or kinds of existence. Yes. So he sort of starts out with, uh, and, and his and, theory, and, by and, the way- And let's remember that the early Christian writers take a lot from the ancient Greek writers yeah. often. The, the yeah. philosophical tradition. Even the idea of the soul yeah. is, is like, I mean, there's a way that it plays out in the ancient Hebrew texts of Judaism, and there's a way that it plays out in the ancient Greek texts of Socrates and Aristotle, mm. uh, Plato. And a lot of the language becomes kind of more Greek than Hebrew in because of the course, Bible. A lot of the early Greek, a lot of the early Christian church is a Greek church. Yeah, that's like the center of Christianity for a lot yeah. of its history. Um, I think a guy called Tom Holland has actually written a book called Dominion about this throughput, basically, this yeah. like strand of Western thought that goes through both the ancient Greek philosophers and Christianity. And yeah. I mean, Nietzsche used to say that uh, Jesus is Plato for the masses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hot takes. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's Still not, a hot take 200 years later. I'm not, not saying that's Let's true. not get into Nietzsche. <laughs> I'm not affirming that. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. He had an interesting idea there. Yeah. Um, so even within the sort of confines of what we generally today think of as a monolithic block, there's been some philosophical debate over this question because it yeah. is such a difficult one. So yeah, and I just dispel out the Aristotelian idea. Okay, so you've got elemental matter like rocks, yeah. and then you've got vegetable matter, like uh, plants, plants and trees and stuff. And you've got then you've got animal matter, and then you've got personable matter. Yes, and e- each one of those levels, he kind of has this. Uh, which makes a lot of sense. Like when you kind of think about if you you have to draw arbitrary lines dividing up all the things in the universe. But there are. How do you divide them? That would be a pretty good. Yeah. You know, and and the way that we study science today is very much like physics and chemistry studies the elemental matter. Biology studies all of the third kinds, but you know often the elemental, the vegetables. Yeah. And then it's got something Z- like botany. Zoology. And, yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and his point was like the fetus kind of goes from being – elemental to being vegetable to being animal to being personable yeah and where you draw those lines at least if you think you've got that laid out then you can think of mm. the, the person thing coming after or before some particular moment yes so i so from a contemporary philosophical point of view uh there's i think that secularists often underappreciate their challenge and re- religious people often underappreciate their challenge too mm. of figuring out when you think a person becomes a person. What is that ignition point? Mm. From the religious person's point of view, let's say in the Abrahamic tradition yeah. of religion, the answer seems to be quite simple because we say a soul embodies itself yeah. And at that point, you've got a person. You, at that point, you've got the divine spark is present in the way that really matters. Yeah. And and souls, wherever there's a soul, there's equal dignity and, and you don't go killing innocent embodied souls. Um, so you've got, an, you've got a, an answer to the question, when does it happen? Well, when does a person become a person? Well, when the soul enters the body. But how do you tell when the soul enters the body? But now you have to body. say yeah. when the soul enters the body. From a secularist point of view, you've got no appeal to the soul You've got to say that a person comes into being when through some other quality yeah. through when it, when it's when it's impersonated 
uh, to use Hobbes's phrase from the 16th century. But when is when is when is there impersonation? When does a bunch of elements floating around impersonate uh, Nicholas Lorimer yeah. or impersonate Gabriel Krauser? That's also quite a hard question to answer. A very difficult question for well, there are many reasons, but one of them is that the the literal molecules that make us up change over time. Yeah, that's a very good reason. Now here is a potential answer at the moment of conception. That's an answer that both secularists and religious people can wed themselves to. Mm. Um, and intuitive, there's like, it's such an important moment that I see the appeal. It's yeah, like- it's When there's a unique DNA s uh, sequence yes. kind of thing that exists. Yeah. yeah. Here's the problem with that answer. I'm not saying you can't get over this problem, but I'm just saying if you ever want to think about abortion and the abortion debate, whether you're a religious person, whether you're a secular person, whether you at the moment fall on the pro-choice side or the pro-life side, as those silly ways of putting it are. Mm. I just think that this is something that you should wrestle with. This is something I still wrestle with. Once you've got one cell with a unique DNA structure, it then has to split and you get two copies of the same cell and then it splits again. And that splitting process happens a few times before you start getting specialization where some of them split to start becoming arms and some of them split to start becoming eyeballs and so on and so on, yeah. right? In the beginning, you're just getting copy-paste, copy-paste as they split. The difficult thing is once you've got two, each one of those can then separate and split themselves mm. and grow separately. And that's how you get identical twins. Yeah. Once you've got four, you know, one couple can break off and that becomes a person splitting again and again. And the other two can each separate individually one, one, and those can go off. And then you get triplets, identical triplets. So, so both uh, installment in this case and sort of, you know, is a person, person via DNA. Yes. Both have a difficulty at this point. Both have a difficulty at this point. Why is, and, and by the way, it just uh, doesn't just stop at two. I think you can go up to 16 cells or 32 <laughs> cells. No. And that can, you know, it can be like one, you grow to, you grow to 16 and then they split to make twins and then the one keeps growing and then the other one splits again when it gets to mm. uh, a later stage. So that's a problem because of what we call identity. And when I say we, I'm now talking about proper philosophically trained people and not the silly fools that get through the Marxist sausage factories who think <laughs> identity means I like Manchester United or I look like this. <laughs> no, I'm talking about I, the relationship of identity is that relation that everything bears to itself and nothing else. Mm. It's a good definition of an identity. It has three properties, transitivity, reflexivity, and a third one that I can't remember right now. Oh, and, and, fancy philosopher words. <laughs> and symmetry, what does transitivity mean? It means if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A must be equal to C. Yeah. There's no way around it. Otherwise, you don't have identity. I'm talking about identity as in two plus two is identical to uh, six minus two because they're both identical to four. Mm. Those sets all overlap at exactly the same point and nowhere else. Yeah. That's identity. It's the identity of four. A soul is, a, is something that has an identity. It's mm. one of these things that's equal to itself and nothing else. If you say there's a soul in play at the moment of conception, then you've got it to say- It can't suddenly become two. It can't suddenly become two souls. Or, or at least even if it does suddenly become two, then it suggests that something later in the process is responsible. Has happened. Now. So if you're saying at the moment when there's one soul conception, you've got one soul, now it's 32 cells with the same DNA and then they split. Now a new soul has come into being. Then you're saying it's not just at conception that a soul can come into play. It's also at some later stage when you have some kind of splits. Hmm and not other kinds of splits. And why do I say not other kinds of splits? Well, because there's other kinds of cloning, which we have pulled off, which is where I take some of Nicholas's blood that just came out of his nose, <laughs> I extract his DNA, I put that into an empty zygote, and then I can grow an DNA identical Nicholas. Yes. Is that got a new soul? Yeah. Well, it probably does. It probably does. Although maybe, it, you know, you, you your soul story you can't just say the soul only comes in at the moment of conception because unless you're prepared to say that that clone that I've made doesn't have a soul or somehow is exactly the same soul as you, or if you want to say that twins, one of the twin doesn't have a soul. Or, or come up with some other solution. It's, your, it's a problem you've got to deal with. Yeah. And if you're a secularist and you think that that moment of unique DNA 
uh, co-alignment is enough, then it's a problem you have to deal with. So a lot of people have dealt with this problem by saying you, there, there's a whole bouquet, a buffet of arguments, and I'm not going to well, get into there, all of them. There's an extremist version of the opposite where you know there's, there's a couple of people who say basically the child doesn't become a human being until it goes home from the hospital. No, some people say you don't become a person until you like competent enough to vote and yeah. drive and take care of yourself. I mean, because that's what a real person is. I don't think uh, the Romans counted someone as being, you know, the pre-Christian Romans counted someone as being a, a human being until like the age of two or something. Yeah, yeah, because child, Spartans child mortality was so high, and the Spartans, of course, didn't either because they yeah. constantly there was a lot of infanticide. So, so it's a difficult thing for anyone to wrestle with. Um, You've got to figure out your own line and then you've got to figure out what kinds of certainty, and this is the really hard part, how certain can you be once you've figured out a line that your line is the correct one? Hmm. Because if you are very certain, the more certain you are, the more you've got to think the government's laws have to track that line. Hmm. The less certain you are, the more you might think that the government has an obligation to track a line that even if it's not exactly the correct one, is a safer line. And so I think that leads a lot of people who've thought about this to say, well, even if it is only a person in the, in the way that I think is truest when it's two weeks old or when it's very late term pregnancy, I'm not so sure of that. And I think the government should err on the side of caution in terms of allowing us to kill people. And so maybe we should make it the second trimester before that you can abort because yeah. I can't find the argument I, to say why there's a person there and after that you can't abort because it seems like there's a good enough argument that there is a person there that that person's life should be protected. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's the right argument. I'm just saying if you want to understand why people, uh, why so many people in so many countries have kind of coalesced around that position, mm. I think it's because it's, a, it's the kind of position you might find yourself coming to if you're religious and you don't know when the soul comes into play, but you're trying to find a time that seems, you're trying to find a law that uh, is erring a little bit on the side of caution without all the way going back to conception because it's hard to square conception as the moment that the soul comes in, unless you have a good supplementary story about twinning and triplets and so on. And likewise that you don't want to push it to, and, and, and the same for secularists who have their own well, I, you know, yeah. I, I, one day I'd love to give you very good secular stories. <laughs> I'd love to tell you my thesis about what, yeah. how I think a person can be constituted without a soul. Um, but that's not for today. Yeah. And, the, and it's, I, I, the thing for today is just to try and show what it looks like to think yeah. a bit about abortion without ripping people's heads off. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, we in this podcast, we tend to sort of disagree slightly on this issue. I tend yeah. to be more on the restrictionist side and you tend to be slightly more on the, you know. Allowance. Allowance side. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Not by much, but there are yeah. disagreements between us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we don't have much time left. I think we only, it's a little bit difficult to tell now that we've been interrupted halfway through, but I think we've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, I, we will get into the politics, I think, Wait, of, Yeah. Of, of so abortion. the politics of yeah. abortion, the, the thing to just note is that if people have conversations like this throughout America, then I think it's going to be okay. It would be good. I think reasonable people will disagree about some details, but we'll also find enough common ground to craft laws and to craft uh, social make, systems. That don't make people rip their hair out. Yeah. yeah that, that, I think, that we should, us I think on another episode we should go really in depth about sort of the little bit of the political history about this in, yeah, because in I, the US and the world. To explain yeah. why it seems very likely, at least to me, like hot take, like the bold claim to be explored at a later yeah. stage. I think abortion is going to be one of the biggest problems in American politics for the next 20 mm. years. And that it will, like if you think the Trump thing has divided America, it's I think the, the abortion question mm. is going to be substantially more stressful to the fabric of and, that society even, because I don't yeah. think people are going to be willing to talk about it the way that we've just tried to start talking about it. Yeah. There is so much more to say. And 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 uh, while we won't know for sure whether it's going to be the biggest, it is definitely going to continue to be a long-running uh, issue, issue yeah. in the country and in many countries across the world, actually. Um, but let's quickly move on to uh, the American Democratic primary. Uh, we just had what's called Super Tuesday where 14 states vote. Um, and out of nowhere, with all the odds against him, Joe Biden, based Boomer Biden, 
has come back. Crazy Joe. Out of nowhere to win a huge number of states off the back of his win in South Carolina at the end of February. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden won Alabama, Arkansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia, as opposed to his opponent, uh, Bernie Sanders, who won California, Colorado, and Utah, as well as his home state of Vermont. And the billionaire, who I think is the ninth richest person in the world at the moment, Michael Bloomberg, won the territory of American Samoa. Hoorah, I say. (laughs) Um, So this is, and this seems to have come off the back of uh, endorsements by Joe Biden's other opponents, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, dropping out and immediately endorsing him, yeah. which is what caused him to win yeah. uh, Minnesota, for example, because Amy Klobuchar was from Minnesota. And uh, he won, it seems from the data, primarily based off of late deciding voters, yeah. all swinging to him. Yeah, And some clever writer from National Review described this as the biggest defeat for socialism since the end of the Soviet Union. <laughs> Which is spicy and big if true, and I think maybe true. It might may actually be true. Bernie Sanders, uh, for all of his claims that he represents a sort of democratic socialism of, of, uh, of uh, Scandinavia, yeah. Which firstly overstates how socialist Scandinavia is. Yeah. You know, for example, they do not often have a minimum wage except determined by negotiation in sectors. Yeah. Um, he he actually has a long running affair with the sort of hardline proper communism of the Soviet Union. Yeah. He has repeatedly praised communist dictators everywhere. Doesn't yeah. matter where they are, Central America, Venezuela, uh, Russia, and the Soviet Union. Of course, he honeymooned in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I, I want to stick up for him with the praising of the Cubans. Like, you know what? If you're going to praise, I'm. I don't. I think that we should be cautious of overstating how bad it is to praise the Cubans for for improving uh, literacy. Uh, I think it's the same here. No, but he didn't just do that. I mean, he's he's praised them for pretty it, much everything. Under it's the sun. not just that. I agree. But if someone wants to say, like, okay, apartheid was evil and wicked and stupid. It built a good uh, power grid through ESCOM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I take your point. I take your point that like that you, we shouldn't you, shun someone just for saying that, and so, we shouldn't shun someone just for saying that Cuba. Uh, Improved literacy yeah. rates. So, so, but that's not all exactly. It, it's that's just a little data point. But he's, I just want to flag done, that he's done a bit of a Martin Bailey kind of argument here, where uh, he kind of goes on ranges about American imperialism destroying everything and how these places of great revolutionary centers of work that are, you know, their bread lines are so good because it means that people are getting bread and yeah, uh, the bread lines are so good because it means people are getting bread and their, their healthcare systems are so good and their literacy is so good. And, you know, they've done a couple of things wrong, but let's not focus on that because that's CIA propaganda. But then when he's attacked, he just says, look, I just think we can learn some things from these countries. Yeah, yeah. Which is the... So it's the whole package that's the problem. The whole package is the problem. And uh, a lot of his spending plans, not, you know, he's got the Elizabeth Warren plan, except unlike Elizabeth Warren, he's much clearer because he hasn't claimed to have... A number. A plan for everything and a number yeah. for everything. In fact, he despises yes. numbers. He you can't it. know what the effects were going to be because it's going to revolutionize everything and we're going to take on Big Pharma. And yeah. yeah. He, he's much clearer in that. But even so, he does seem a little bit evasive. Yeah, he's evasive. Um, and as a result, I think... He pivots. He just pivots very hard yeah. to who he wants to attack. Yeah, I think, I think and you know, the constant sort of class warfare rhetoric... I'm not a fan of. Yeah, I don't like these kind of demonization of people just because they're rich. Yeah. Um, so personally, I've been very worried about a Bernie okay. Sanders. So this is why I think Mike Bloomberg is the hero of the day. <laughs> Firstly, everyone's laughing at him. Everyone's making so, fun of him, so we, we, we which must, is a very strong indicator that someone's done something very good. We Especially must, when CNN starts laughing at you, then I think you must just suspect that this person might I, be a real hero. I would like to put a little caveat in here. Yes. There's a, there can be there's two ways to be a hero. Yeah, you can be an intentional hero yeah. or an unintentional hero. We will never know for sure whether Mike Bloomberg was an intentional or unintentional. But I would, if I were a betting man, I would say unintentional. Okay, hero. I think he was an intentional hero. Here's what he did: he did two great things. Firstly, he went on the debate stage enough times for all Americans to see Bernie Sanders. Warren. Well, he starts a lot of the Elizabeth attacks against Warren. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, he goes in the attack, and and what is the counterattack? He goes on stage and lets all Americans see those guys go after him and say, "The problem is you. The problem is billionaires. These people did not work for their money. They don't deserve it. They're holding their money, and now they're trying to buy elections." 
I think that on CNN and in the New York Times, uh, the debates were reviewed as like devastating for Bernie. For, for, for Bloomberg. Sorry, for Bloomberg. Thank you. Devastating for Bloomberg. And you know what? Maybe people saw that and they didn't like him particularly. Yeah. But I think a lot of people also saw that and really didn't like the socialists hating on the rich in such a personal, nasty way. Because yeah, what was. Bloomberg represents is this dream of being, well, being born a peasant and dying a billionaire. As, and when you yeah. crap on that dream, you crap on the American dream and you crap on the American people. And as, and as, as he himself pointed it. out, you know, where has a huge amount of his money gone? To democratic candidates, yeah. to gun control efforts, all things that are popular. So he blows party. up the hypocrisy of these he socialists also, and he gets the heart of America to see the hypocrisy with which it's covered, the hypocrisy with which he's attacked. He's also the first democratic candidate to bring up the fact that Bernie Sanders has three houses. Yeah. As Bernie Sanders says, I have one in Vermont, one in Washington, fair enough so far. But then he says, and a little lake cavern or a lake camp, I think is the phrase he used, in Vermont, like everyone in Vermont. Yeah, well, I not, get that. That's not fine. all of us have holiday homes. I mean, this yeah. does put you in. Uh, no, but I think, look, I, again, I'm going to stick up for Bernie here, although course. this is not my plan. Because, because, for example, I've been in Russia and I know a little bit about how the Vermont is. Like in Russia, lots, like lots of very working class people, lots of petrol attendants have a holiday house because their holiday house is a tiny little wooden shed. Uh, near to a lake. A Bernie's is not. A and five minutes shed. away from another little thing. So yeah. they don't, people like in South Africa having a holiday home generally yeah, yeah, but come like up, a but Bernie's, Bernie's is not a little holiday shed. It's yeah, like, but it's not that grand. Yeah, it's not that grand, but he also is a millionaire and he very curiously changed his rhetoric from being against the millionaires and the billionaires to just being against, against, against the, the billionaires. When he became a millionaire. I know. Yes. So, but we know a lot of this stuff. The thing that yeah, was great about we, Bloomberg. We, we that, outside the left knew this stuff. Yeah. But the left hadn't heard this argument until Bloomberg made it on that stage. And for Bloomberg to go up there and just be the punching bag and be like, you know what, I'm a billion dollar punching bag, punch me. I think invited them to punch him in a very personal way and a lot of Americans saw that and they didn't like it. That's one of the great things he did. Another great thing that he did is, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> imagine that Bernie Sand, sorry, imagine that Mike Bloomberg came to you or me a year ago and said, I've got a, $1.5 billion, I want to stop Donald Trump. What do I do? I think it would be very wise advice to say and very obvious to say, if you just spend all your money on a good moderate candidate, everyone is going to accuse you of trying to buy an election. They're going to say the problem is too much money in politics and the people who say that the that most worked a bit are the Hillary Bernie Clinton. wing mm. and that's how Bernie does well. You're just going to increase, put it this way, in a way Americans like to put it, for every dollar you spend on a Joe Biden or a Pete Buttigieg centrist, you're going to be spending 95 cents in effect on free advertising for Bernie Sanders, who's going to say, look at the billionaire establishment. They've bought the Republican Party through Trump and now they're buying the Democratic Party through Bloomberg. Yeah. It's going to backfire. So how do you undo that? How do you change the narrative? Well, Mr. Bloomberg, I would say, if he called me into his <laughs> office, I think you should put a third of your money behind a candidate who's never going to win. Who's definitely Just young. pick a big-time loser. Who's, who's unpopular but famous. You pour $500 million into Facebook ads about this guy. He doesn't win. If, and then, In fact, he gets a little bit humiliated. In fact, he gets humiliated. Then after that, you can put the billion behind Joe Biden or someone like that. And every time afterwards someone complains and says, oh, he's just trying to buy the election, everyone's going to remember the moment when this first candidate lost. When and, the money guy lost. And the world says, oh, my God, you can't buy an election. It turns out it doesn't work. The best way to buy an election is to first fake buy an election, fail, and then go and actually buy it. This would have been the advice, and this would have had one problem. I think Bloomberg would say, it sounds risky. Who's this candidate you have in mind? <laughs> and I would say, well, Mr. Bloomberg, honestly, I think the best loser would be you. Why don't you be the candidate? And then he would say, well, 
Now that does sound interesting. You want me to be the patsy that falls to show that money doesn't buy an election before I actually buy the election. But what <laughs> if it doesn't work? And I would say, yes, Mr. Bloomberg, what if it doesn't work? If it doesn't work, you might accidentally end up buying the election for yourself and that would be a disaster, but maybe we could do something about it. And he says, that's exactly the kind of worst case scenario that I like. Yeah, the worst case we scenario where being I get president. to be president, yes. <laughs> So, You're hired. So I think he hired someone like that. And I think that that together with his being the billion dollar punch bag has done a very good job of isolating not only Bernie Sanders, but also of setting Joe Biden up with the chance of a win going forward because now Joe Biden has got Mike Bloomberg's billion dollars behind him and they've kind of been rinsed. It's kind of been like a great yeah. mafia laundering exercise. That money is now clean. So that's that's a very nice theory. Thank and, you. And I do like it. it, Thank it, it you. And, and I think unintentionally yeah, but, some version of that. Say but, say but, but. But, but. <laughs> Nicholas. <laughs> this plan requires you won't give your me hero, your hero, Michael Bloomberg, to yes. be a selfless paragon of virtue who's going to sacrifice himself before the altar of the nation, risk yes. public humiliation. Yes. But here's a little thing about Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. He quite likes Michael Bloomberg to the extent, <laughs> and, and I will encapsulate this with but a simple story. While on the campaign trail, so not in an interview a few years ago, not, you know, not in the distant past, yeah. he said this. Not in private. He said this very recently. He said, you know, I always make sure to shake the hand of every doorman in New York that I come across so that they can say to their children that they met someone famous, me. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the okay. kind of guy who heroically sacrifices his own reputation. <laughs> no, but I think he knows that there are guys like me that are going to see the true play no, no, no. and that I will record it in history and that his name will be remembered for generations to come. I think, I think that what happened here is that Michael Bloomberg uh, flamed out thinking that he could win the election just with a lot of money like he did in New York. But now he's realized that, well, I'm out but I want to stop Donald Trump and so I'm going to give all my money to a moderate and with me and my money behind whichever moderate I pick in this case is Joe Biden, we will be an unstoppable juggernaut who will stop Donald Trump and I will have saved the country restoring my image after the humiliation of my failed presidential campaign. Which, yeah, that's that's his viewpoint. I they think. sound the same. It's just one thing you've got to remember is he didn't spend all one and a half billion on himself. He, he said, I'm, well, he said from early on in the campaign, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, there'll be a billion that comes afterwards that I'll spend on whoever wins the nomination. Yes. Kind yeah. of in brackets he as said long as it's not time. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah. And um, it still might be Bernie Sanders, but it's going to be an uphill battle from now. But we will follow this with interest. Yeah. Uh, I think we're okay. sort of going I think over we're time going now. over time. So uh, it's hard to know because of, of the nosebleed. But 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 I think we've laid out three very hot takes. Mike Bloomberg yes. is a hero. Abortion is something that you can't talk about like milk. And <laughs> and coronavirus, don't under or overreact. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree.